I'd like to tell you here to start out with, about a day last fall, I was leading a workshop at the free jobs office that I run in Frederick, and I put my foot just straight into my mouth. Two of our five job applicants in that workshop were African-Americans who I will call Shatrina and Jeremiah. I was talking about how important it is after a job interview for applicants to contact the employer to email a thank you note or something like that to reiterate their desire to work there. So there in our Justice Jobs workshop, I pulled up a line that I learned back in the 1980s when I was trying to make a living selling Cutco kitchen knives. And <clears throat> the line is about if you how if you contact a person multiple times, it helps to build a relationship. But the problem was I repeated it just like we said it back in the 1980s. I said, if you touch a person seven times, you will own them. Immediately, Shatrina, sitting right next to where I was standing, physically recoiled in the opposite direction. I guess you always recoil in the opposite direction, right? I glanced over and I got this look from Jeremiah that said something like WTF. And I quickly backtracked and said, well, uh, of course, you know, I shouldn't say it like that in 2018. Nobody should use language about owning another person. But we could translate that for today into something like if you contact a person seven times, you're going to have a relationship with them, right? Everybody relaxed and we proceeded with the workshop. Now, during the break, I apologized to Shatrina and, and Jeremiah for my faux pas. And they laughed and said, oh, you're cool. We know you didn't mean anything. So soon I learned that they did indeed know that because they stayed with us and participated fully and eventually got jobs through our jobs office. And they still come back from time to time for dinners and, and events for our graduates. Our theme this morning is Beloved Conversations. And that theme is taken from a UU anti-racism course that was put together at Meadville Lombard Seminary. And I participated in that course last fall with other members of this congregation. Now, the aim of Beloved Conversations, the course, is to help us to dismantle systemic and unconscious structures of white supremacy in our lives, in our congregations, by starting from the inside on the theory that we need to dismantle racism within ourselves before we can ever hope to dismantle it out there in the world. Now, last fall, I selected this title and this topic for today before I ever took the course. And if I knew then what I know now, I would have never picked this topic. <laughs> you might ask why. Well, why is because I thought quite naively, in fact, that after I was done the course, perhaps I thought that I was going to be fixed and that I could come in here and tell you all about this great anti-racism course that's going to fix everything you ever didn't like about yourself. Instead, what you're about to get is an honest reflection of my continuing learning to this day around our eighth principle. This sermon may not make you real happy. It may not make you like me. The good thing is I don't care about that anymore as long as I'm being real. And there's freedom in that. But <clears throat> it's the best I can do right now, and I hope to continue to grow and to learn and to evolve around any oppression work. And if you've already evolved past where I am, then good for you. 
but I hope that you'll understand that there might be somebody else sitting in this room who's right where I am, and maybe they need to know that they're not alone. The fact is, there are some things that I really didn't like about the Course Beloved Conversations, but it did make me dig deeper into the buried racism in my own life than I've ever dug before. It stirred up feelings that left me feeling quite unsatisfied with myself. It challenged my perceptions about my everyday relationships. For example, I now recognize and confess that I feel different when I'm panhandled by a black man than when when I'm panhandled by a white woman. I can't help that so far. It's just the way I feel. It's ingrained in my raising. I don't choose to feel that way. I just do. But because I've had this and other revelations about how deeply bias and prejudice are embedded in my own worldview, there's a point at which at which I still want to push back a bit. Not a bit, I want to push back. And that point is this. <clears throat> I'm still not convinced that every instance of liberal dissatisfaction with the world and our performance in it automatically adds up to personal and systemic racism. Now, I'm going to repeat that because that's the potential UU heresy in this sermon, and if I'm going to commit UU heresy, I want to be clear about it. (laughs) I'm not convinced that every instance of liberal dissatisfaction with the world and our performance in it automatically adds up to personal and systemic racism. Now, before you get out the tar and feathers, please allow me to elaborate. In one of our beloved conversations sessions, we watched a video that showed a series of of racially questionable situations. In one of them, a white woman approaches an elevator, and the doors open up. It's a nearly deserted office building. A black man is standing inside the elevator. She freezes, backs away, and lets the doors shut, after which I suppose she waits for an empty car. After the videos, we discussed how we had felt watching them. I called out that video about the woman in the elevator, and I said, I felt more pity and compassion for her than I did judgment. She's not going to learn her way out of microaggressions like that. If she needs anything, it's therapy and not criticism. And besides, I can't say I really blame her. The building is deserted. I think it's her call whether to get on that elevator one-on-one with any man. It's not a matter of race, it's a matter of safety, her perception of her safety, and her own history. And I would certainly understand if she didn't want to get on there with me. Our leader told us that this was the only video in both groups that she was teaching where there was pushback on the idea that the woman's response at the elevator might have been a microaggression. It turns out that I was not the only liberal UU in the room who sympathized with the woman at the elevator door, too. Now, I just used a word, microaggression. How many of you are familiar with that word? A good number. We're a good UU congregation. How many uh, microaggressions is defined for, for all of us? It's defined by psychology today as microaggressions are everyday verbal 
nonverbal or environmental slights, snubs, or insults, intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile or derogatory messages targeting people solely based on their marginalized group membership. And microaggressions are not just about race. They can affect any marginalized group, people of color, women, LGBT persons, those with disabilities, religious minorities, and so on. Now, here are some examples of microaggressions. An Asian American born and raised in the United States is complimented for speaking good English. There's a hidden message there. You're not a true American. You're a perpetual foreigner in your own country. Another example, an assertive female manager is labeled as a bitch, while her male counterpart is described as a forceful leader. The hidden message, women should be passive and allow men to be the decision makers and the presidents. A person uses gay Another example, a person uses gay to describe a movie that they don't like. The hidden message, being gay, is associated with negative and undesirable characteristics. Now, I totally agree that microaggressions exist and that they harm people who feel them. I agree that harmful microaggressions are often delivered by well-intentioned individuals who are unaware that they are harming another person. I also believe that research that shows microaggressions powerfully impact the psychological well-being of marginalized groups and affect their standard of living by creating inequities in health care, education, and employment. Yes, microaggressions are real and they're a problem. And I'm not denying that in any shape, way, or form. What I do take exception to is the suggestion that we should feel guilty for microaggressions like the one I committed at the workshop with Shatrina and Jeremiah. The definition I read you suggests it's a microaggression if the receiver perceives it that way, whether it was intended that way or not, and I agree with that. Harm happens to the person who receives the microaggression, whether it is sent knowingly by the sender or not. But do I actively send a microaggression when I have no intent to do so? Does the perpetrator benefit from experiencing guilt or being shamed when they had no intent or understanding regarding that microaggression? Or do we just need to give them space to learn, to apply a new awareness and understanding in their own future? Where in our community can we find room for nuance? I almost said shades of gray but that could be a microaggression. <laughs> as communities, as people in relationship, we need to allow some nuance before we judge each other and ourselves harshly for microaggressions that arise in the absence of malice. At least until the so-called perpetrator is made aware, we should make available a modicum of grace, just like the grace, the free gift, undeserved but freely given, just like that grace that Shatrina and Jeremiah offered to me and which I so readily accepted. Now that I've learned what that line sounds like in 2019, I'm certainly responsible to go out and reframe it in an acceptable way in the future, like I did on my feet that day. But while I apologize to Shatrina and Jeremiah for my faux pas, for my social error, 
Never for a minute did I feel morally culpable in that, and rightly, they did not hold me morally culpable. Last year, Jill Lepore published her landmark history of the United States. The title is These Truths, and there's a subtitle like there always is. If you look up Jill Lepore and These Truths, you'll nail it. It's, I think it's the best 800 pages I've read on U.S. history since Howard Zinn's People's History. Lepore is refreshing because she, ref- she writes not only about how conservatives go wrong, but also she challenges me. She writes about how liberals screw up too. She challenges liberals not to get lost in what she calls endless pieties over smaller and smaller stakes, not to get caught up in sanctimonious accusations of racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. She decries the pious call-out and sentimental, meaningless outrage that can divide liberals in the face of adversaries that are more serious than fellow liberals, fellow other liberals, I should say. A prime example of the pious call-out is the anti-Semitism charges that happened within the Women's March movement last December, which fractioned the leadership and overshadowed the movement's primary purpose. It was a liberal firing squad. Everybody lined up in a circle and fired inwards. Instead of being so quick to call each other out, wouldn't it be more constructive to take a deep breath and to lovingly call each other in? After I read that section from Lepore, perhaps I was hypervigilant when I turned back to another book I was reading at the same time. That other book was Cornell West's recent anthology of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work titled The Radical King, The Radical King. At one point in one of the pieces in that book, King points out that his dictionary listed 120 synonyms for black. Fully half of them were negative compared to 134 synonyms for white, all of which were favorable. What a language, King concludes, that gives black children 60 reasons to associate their own skin with darkness, ugliness, and evil, and gives white children 134 reasons to view themselves as the pinnacle of humanity. Yes, our language is deficient, but who among us can rewrite the English language? And then I noted that not even Dr. King could do that because four pages later in the very same speech, King himself referred to the evil darkness of racism. Now, I'm not trying to make a pious call out on Dr. King. I'm just saying our language fails us. It's a real world. It's bigger than all of us, and we're all tools in it. As Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd from River Road wrote, River Road UU, she wrote, in this context, in this past spring's issue of UU World, nothing we do will be perfect. In that article, she reminds us, while not all perfectionists are white supremacists, perfectionism is a white supremacist value. I recently talked with my wife, about these crazy ideas of mine, which for a UU could be called controversial or worse on several accounts. At one point, she had been listening to me hold forth for a while, and she sat up straight, which is my signal to listen, and said, <laughs> and she said, what I want to know is, when are we going to give each other some grace? 
She went on to assert, I didn't spend most of my life recovering from perfectionism just to becoming just to become a groveling repentant every time someone around me gets overly sensitive. Now, that's my wife speaking. My version of that is, I did not repudiate the doctrine of original sin when I was 12 years old just to beat up on myself for not being perfect now. If you take one thing from this sermon, I hope it's this. Just because a person makes a mistake, we shouldn't brand them a bad person to be marked for life. All of our UU principles are boundaries for good behavior. They're boundary conditions inside which we can operate successfully and safely. The only interesting situations are the ones where two or more principles apply in contradiction or apparent contradiction. Otherwise, the situation is a no-brainer if it's just one principle. For example, Principles 1 and 3 are often intention. Every person recognizes inherent worth and dignity, principle 1. But principle 3 urges us also to accept one another and encourage each other to spiritual growth. Now, accepting and encouraging each other presupposes that we have human faults and frailties despite our inherent worth and dignity. If we were perfect, we'd have no need to accept each other or to encourage each other to grow. The alternative to that conundrum is a healthy middle ground where we simply love each other, practice at sensitivity, and learn from our mistakes. The world is not inherently evil, and humans aren't innately evil. At the same time, the world is not inherently nirvana, and human beings cannot always perfectly navigate the human condition. Rather, the good and the evil are two inseparable sides of the same coin. They're two yin and yang halves of an integral unity. If we want one half, we have to accept and work with the other. Along the way, we can take challenging classes like Beloved Conversations so that we will continue to grow. And we can give ourselves and each other some grace when we screw up. Conversations where we dispense grace are the most beloved conversations that we can have. In those conversations, let us love and respect and forgive each other without expecting perfection from anybody, including from ourselves.